Today's scoop is all about Ryan Walker, the 23-year-old head of fermentation and research and development at Silo in Hackney Wick. Silo is a zero-waste restaurant owned by Douglas McMaster, and the crazy thing about this restaurant is it doesn't have a bin. It is pioneering restaurant sustainability worldwide. Kind of the idea here is for it to be sustainable, obviously not just within food and ingredients and supply chain, but sustainable within work environment, um, working hours and split. Ryan has a mountain of scientifically backed chefy knowledge and knows how to make it quite literally digestible for others. Being surrounded by food from an early age. I grew up cooking. Um, my mum's from Thailand, so we always did uh, a lot of Thai cooking at home. And my nan, she cooked a lot, um, quite a lot of French food as well. It obviously struck a chord for him as something really important. Maybe they don't get what a garam is, or maybe they don't get why you've foraged this certain thing, or like how this oil works, or why you've plated it in this way. But when they see it and smell it and taste it, and they hear the story behind it, then that's the link. He has a pretty awesome route into cooking, beginning in Copenhagen. And then that same year, I went to Mad Academy for um, a scholarship to do environmental sustainability within food and agriculture. Then quickly rising up the ranks by becoming head chef at his local pub in the UK. Then entering the labs at Silo. The thing is, like, you know, if a dish tastes nice, like, even if the idea is wild, like, it's still going to land. It's pretty clear that he had to learn some important skills for success fast. And he definitely did that. Without further ado, I present the scoop on Silo's Ryan Walker. I'm Stella, and I'm going to take you out for dinner. Now, it's lovely to be here today, and I know I've already asked you loads of questions, even before the mic was on, but what I wanted to start with was to find out a bit more about you. You're super young. You're 24? Three. I would just like to know how you got to this stage in your career already, and what made you choose this quite specific culinary pathway? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm still not entirely sure. I kind of fell into cooking, I guess. Um, so I moved to Australia uh, when I was 18, and I was kind of looking for any sort of job that I could get into. I, I did some cooking jobs back in the UK, and I was interested in it during school, and I grew up cooking. Um, my mum's from Thailand, so we always did uh, a lot of Thai cooking at home. And my nan, she cooked a lot. Uh, quite a lot of French food as well. So, like, I always loved cooking growing up, uh, and I was always exposed to a lot of good food, but I never really decided to pursue that path, never went to culinary school or, or college or, or anything like that. Um, yeah, so I kind of stumbled into this kitchen, and the head chef there at the time, he cooked at a... He's from South Africa, living in Australia, uh, but he cooked at a manor house called Clevedon, um, that was, say, 20 minutes away from where I grew up. Uh, and that manor house is like, I went as a kid, um, and I remember having this dish, it was like a monkfish carpaccio, I think. Uh, and that dish was like so simple, it was just like cured monkfish and some spices on top and some, and some like lemon zest or something. Um, and I was like, okay, I want to, like, that's the dish that I tried that really made me interested in cooking. Because uh, it was so simple and so incredible. It was like perfect showing of produce and so on. So it's so weird to like, and I was in a place called Horsham, which is, if you draw a line between Melbourne and Adelaide, it's like slap bang in the middle, it's a truck stop town. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, there's nothing really uh, <laughs> interesting about it. It's like 10,000 people in population and everyone knows everyone. Um, so it's so weird to like stumble into a kitchen there with a guy that was from South Africa, you know, he's now working and living in the middle of nowhere. 
um, and he worked 20 minutes from where I grew up. Um, so that was quite a nice kind of entryway to, to cooking. And I was there for a couple of years. Um, I then came back because of COVID, unfortunately. Um, I landed in the pub uh, near where I grew up. I was supposed to go in as a sous chef, and then because of COVID, they didn't really have any sous chef. Well, they didn't have a head chef at the time, so it was like, oh, congratulations, you're now a head chef. Um, so that was quite um, fun, I guess. Uh, it was a hell of a lot of work, and I'm glad that I did it, but I would never do it again, for sure. Um, so I guess in terms of like rushing through the ranks quickly, that's partially why it's kind of happened. Um, and then that same year, I went to Mad Academy for um, a scholarship to do environmental sustainability within food and agriculture, um, which is a great, great course. And that's kind of where I learned about silo from there. Where was that? Uh, that was in Copenhagen. Um, so from there, uh, I came here to eat, actually. And then I remember Doug coming out and he was like, oh, you went to Mad Academy and so on and so forth. Like, uh, we're actually looking for chef jobs, uh, chef position. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So... You know, if you, I came for a stage a few months later, back and forth. There was like a team swap at the time, so I came on with a new team. Um, and that was three years ago now. And the kind of fermentate, like head of fermentation position was like a thing, but it wasn't really like a dedicated position at the time. It was like, you do your mise en place, you also know fermentation, you combine the two and you just have to survive. Um, which was definitely fun, but it wasn't the most efficient and sustainable way of doing things. And kind of the idea here is for it to be sustainable, obviously not just within food ingredients and supply chain, but sustainable within work environment, um, working hours and split. Uh, and also like, that's not just for people's well-being, it's, 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 more consi- it's more efficient for chefs as well. Like if people are happy and if people have the time to focus on what they actually want to do, um, you you get a much much better result um, instead of trying to like have too many fingers and too many pies and and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, like I was here for probably a year, uh, and then I went on to the grill section. Uh, and at that point, our previous kind of head of fermentation left. Um, they were juggling it a bit between the head chefs, and then they were just like, you know what, it doesn't really make sense to like try and develop a whole menu, do fermentation and run a kitchen, especially one here where there's a lot of moving parts. Um, I mean, most of the time it's spent, you know, talking to suppliers and, and making sure like this system that we've built over the course of this, this many years is completely airtight. Um, so they decided, oh, okay, you, you can have a look and do the fermentation. It wasn't really a position at that time either, but, um, and the grow section at that point was quite a involved section for sure. Like you have to, put sure your protein and make sure all your sauces are ready and make sure like your section was always ready every day for, for service at the six o'clock and then somewhere in between all that time you'd have to make a koji you'd have to do all your gams you have to do all your research and so on and so forth um so i think it was kind of after that point where we managed even with all of those constraints to do quite a lot in the short space of time that we're like actually why don't we make this a proper position um and then the idea came across to actually just combine the fermentation is one thing but also the research and development um, so that meant the head chefs didn't have to kind of have the burden of developing and pushing and advancing a, a restaurant and a menu while also running all of the day-to-day stuff managing the kitchen so on and so forth it was kind of like creating this separate fermentation development entity that would then streamline everything so I, I guess kind of everything's like fallen into place quite nicely um, 
and the fact that it's been quick and I'm able to do it at a young age is quite nice but I also like and the staff turnover here is quite low but obviously everyone comes and goes um, so I've probably been here the longest of any chef at the moment because um, most people do like two years or so and then go um, so a part of a part of why I guess I've been into this position is, is one the longevity but that also means you're used to the system you know the byproducts you know kind of the idea and, and what where the menu needs to go in terms of the dishes and ingredients that you have access to and the kind of the ethos behind it as well so everything kind of just like fell into place which is a big uh, how should I put it a big constant here at Silo I think is, is just things kind of falling into their natural position as opposed to like being planned or pushed or so on and so forth uh, it's a very natural process with everything um, and not a very traditional one at that either because uh, I don't really know of another I know of like overseas there's a lot of head of fermentation positions and so on and so forth and especially in America now as well but I've not really seen it in the UK I know of one or two that are doing it in restaurants and they've normally had quite a big preservation of fermentation culture in the past as well um, so obviously they're the ones that are kind of pushing in that direction but across like the, the big names and um, maybe like the three stars and so on it's not really something that exists R&D chefs and development chefs like yeah they're everywhere um, but I've not seen a place combine the two uh, yet but I'm sure it'll change So going from the head chefs juggling many of the different roles to you taking over the head of fermentation and also research and development how did that structural change affect the the the, the atmosphere and the harmony of the kitchen? So it was, it was interesting because um I mean, it wasn't any contention or anything, but at the time they tried to balance, they still had a lot of control over it, which is, that makes sense, obviously, in a kind of transition like this, but the whole idea is obviously to separate the two and then just kind of, like, be kind of fact-checkers, I guess, or, like, you know, you put a dish up or you put a, the garab up or you put X, Y, Z, and it's up to them to be like, okay, you should move it in this direction, this direction, this isn't good enough, this is right. Uh, now, actually, Doug is pretty much the person who does that so for me it's like I develop a dish with all these components together and then it's just the presentation and the taste and so on and then like between me head chef and Doug that's then decided what needs to happen to it or maybe it's just like oh that's good we put it on and it's quite a again with the organic process it's quite an organic process in that sense but before it was like oh you should make this garam we should make this garam and that makes sense in a traditional kitchen and I think a lot of people who might start this sort of project that's the direction they'll move into but like again with the like the natural progression of things like it's it should more just be like especially with how ferments are where you know they're so rich in umami that you don't necessarily need to make them specific to something they will they're very interchangeable to the point where you know the, the foundation of most of our uh, dishes are f like fermentation based but mainly um garam based at least like protein based dishes or kind of savoury dishes but even some of our desserts like I mean Amazake ice cream at the moment is made from Amazake so obviously all, all rice goji um, For people that don't know I'm definitely one of them what is a garam? So again a kind of contentious question because um, that is I guess a little bit argued again the terminology of a lot of these things are quite argued I mean on paper a garam is 
um, anything, say, meat protein-based, um, whether that's like meat trimming or even like down to egg whites, basically an animal protein um, combined with koji and salt and left to ferment. Um, traditionally, that's not been the case. Traditionally, garam was uh, like bluefish. Um, this is in Roman times. Um, so you'd combine salt, fish, and say um, aromatics, like the herbs local to the region, and then you'd basically the fish guts or the fish viscera in that fish would ferment the, the proteins in the fish. Uh, the salt would preserve the mixture, and then you'll basically end up with a, a liquid similar to, say, fish sauce today. I mean, like Thai fish sauce, for example, or like Vietnamese fish sauce, stemmed from that Roman production. Um, well, it is, okay, that's, I guess that's kind of contentious, but it's... So there was also something called Liquamen, um, which was the same product, basically, as, as garum. Um, but that was produced in different regions and outside of, of Italy or the kind of Roman Empire at that time. Um, and some people argue that predates Garam, which, because I'm not a historian, or I wasn't also around 2,000 years ago, I don't know exactly what the case was, but then there's also no evidence that uh, this was this all originated in like, uh, like North Africa, as most things did. Um, so that predates basically the Roman Empire and XYZ. But yeah, I mean, so nowadays, a Garam, also known scientifically as a, a amino source, uh, which doesn't sound as sexy, but that's kind of the specification for it. Um, it's say like an, uh, an animal-based protein and gar and uh, koji and salt, uh, and then you have you have like your shoyus and your tamaris as well, um, which are essentially the same thing but based uh, in plants. Um, shoyu is like a soy sauce, but with uh, gluten involved, whereas tamari typically doesn't have the gluten. Um, but tamari is also the liquid that comes off misos as well. So it's quite it gets quite complicated yeah. when you come to te like doing the terminology. This is, uh, but then also like none of these things should be called tamaris or anything if they don't have soybeans in. That's another kind of specification. Um, but then people obviously don't follow this stuff, which is fine because it's much better to drop a dish and be like, this has a shoyu in it or tamari instead of being like, here's an amino paste made of egg whites. <laughs> and people are just like, what? <laughs> but I think the most important part is uh, people kind of respecting the history behind the name um, and applying like the same kind of practices that, you know, those products were created for. Um, is kind of like the traditional sense, but obviously with modern ingredients. Uh, it's like making a curry, for example. There's certain curries that you can't call a curry, but like if you're kind of, you know, ad adhering to the same mindset that developed that thing in the first place, I think that's completely fine to to call said thing said thing. And also, garum sounds better than, than most things. Um, and I think because it, it's still quite a niche thing, no one's really gonna mind too much about the <laughs> terminology. But yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. As of nowadays, it's garum is normally animal-based protein. Also, mushrooms, people consider a garum as well because there's a contention behind like the specification of mushrooms because they're kind of the halfway between a, a meat and a and a plant um, as well. So it's it's to do with like because it's a, it's a fungus because it's living. Well, I mean, like everything's living, <laughs> so it's like it's again, it's a difficult one. Um, but it, it it's it's more structurally similar to a plant. So people are like, oh well, it's a it's a shoyu or whatever or a tamari, um, but then I think people kind of consider in their minds that mushroom is quite meaty when cooked, 
so then they think it's a gam. <laughs> um, and I mean, like, you know, you look at Noma and their marketing, like they've called their thing uh, a garam, mushroom garam. What we do here is we actually combine different proteins. So we add like a lot of egg whites into a lot of our stuff because it's a super complex um, protein. Um, so then that means most of our things are garams anyway, even if they contain mushrooms and other things, because just from a dietary point of view, um, it's you know it's not vegetarian or vegan anymore. So yeah, uh, that's kind of the spec, I guess. Is it? Yeah. You're obviously very smart and absorb information. It seems. Did you ever consider another career pathway? Yeah. I, so when I came out of school, I um, so I did an internship at an architectural firm. Uh, in Bangkok of all places <laughs> um, that was kind of the place that I wanted to go down I wanted to see like because obviously with architecture it's quite a um, it's a long commitment it's about seven years uh, for the course and you're not guaranteed a position at the end of that um, so it's, it's a very very competitive field uh, so I've always wanted to do something creative but I also like I grew up in a family of engineers um, or mechanical engineers uh, of like four or five generations so like that was kind of like how I was up in that sense. So I kind of wanted to do something which was creative but also relatively like specific. I mean not specific, what's the term? Like technical. Um, so architecture originally was one of the things that I planned on doing. But after doing that internship it was great, it was fun, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. Sitting in an office every day just designing stuff and briefs and, and so on and so forth. I mean it's cool, it's an interesting career. Um, but I didn't want to commit seven years in school for it and I didn't want to have to like fight my way to a position where you can just be creative after like another seven years of being in the industry. Um, I kind of, I prefer to do things kind of hands-on. Um, but even school, I didn't really have a science background. I kind of, I was kind of a kid to like mess around quite a lot and not really care. Also, I really needed, gla- I've got contacts on now, but I really needed glasses at the time. I just refused to wear them so I could never see the board anyway. So I was kind of just sat in class, just not really sure what was going on. Um, <laughs> But I've always been interested in the creative side of things, uh, especially in like design and so on. Um, and also the science side of things as well. Uh, and that's something that's, I noticed like from a kind of early age in cooking was really, really important because a lot of what a chef will tell you is like from his experience or maybe from like another person's experience that they've learned from. Um, and it, like, the problem with that is like you just kind of you're following the blind or it's like kind of like Chinese whispers like maybe the first person to tell that person was like right and then they'll take their own interpretation of it and then 10 chefs later it's like yes it makes sense but, but whereas with the science side it's kind of like oh this equals this because we've done it a thousand times we record it and I don't think like you shouldn't base all cooking off science because that becomes very sterile and bland um, but using that as like a a guidebook, yeah, a foundation or blueprint towards how you think about food is really, really important because all that is is looking at what's come before and, and you know, using that as a... Instead of, like, just trying to make mistakes and, like, kind of brute force your way through something uh, and, like, make loads of mistakes on the go, it's way more efficient just to kind of know what's wrong and know what's right and then innovate from there. I mean, that's the whole, like... That's the whole theory of research and development is... You, it's kind of knowing everything that's come before you and then only then can you develop that's like why research and develop is, is put together as a term because it's research is like is that knowing of the history of everything that's come before and then the, that only then when you have that precursor can you truly develop 
uh, in theory, because it's like you might you may make something which is like in, in your head is like so incredibly like new and whatever. Then you read a book like a week later, and someone's done it before you, and just like oh well, it took me like two months to develop this, but someone's done it already. And it's not necessarily like stealing from the book. It's just kind of going like oh well, that's done before. Maybe we could have spent our time refining that, or we could have spent our time making that thing different or better, or maybe just going down a completely different route like before um, so yeah like it's more efficient in that but I mean going back to uh, school I'm sure I had an interest in it but it's never something that I did in school um, and outside of school it was just purely a personal kind of hobby I guess in that sense mm-hmm. not really something that I committed to I mean like you can pretty much learn everything that you need to and this is contentious again <laughs> pretty much learn everything you need to about science um, on the internet or through a book and I mean, if you read, like, say, a great book is uh, Harold McGee's on food and cooking, uh, or the food and the, the law and science of the kitchen, or whatever it's called. Um, massive, like, encyclopedia-sized book. But if you read that, if you like, if you study that book, if you go page to page and you write and you think about everything that's happening, spend a year doing that. Like, you'll learn pretty much. Like, they use it as a reference book in, in like, in say culinary schools that are teaching food science like if you read that book like back to front properly like you'll learn pretty much everything there is to know about food currently um and the book costs like 40 quid on amazon like just yeah and so 40 pounds in a year of your time you'll learn pretty much everything you need to do obviously you need to be relatively committed and some people don't learn that way yeah but in my head that's like if i was recommending how to learn food science from anyone it's like buy say that book or the other option is going down rabbit holes on on wikipedia or like google and it's like you read one thing and you see a word you don't know and then you just look what that word means and then maybe you see another word from that that you don't know and you kind of like rabbit like bunny hop between each kind of term and then like in an hour you've built up this kind of vocabulary of of words and terms and ideas that you didn't know before and it's also very, very specific to what you're doing. So instead of like doing a chemistry degree and learning all the foundations of chemistry or physics or, or biology, you can kind of like skip all of the, the faff, skip all the stuff that is important if you're a chemist, but if you're doing fermentation, it's maybe not as important as the specific fundamentals that you need to learn. And hopping that way is like, for me, that was the kind of one of the best options was because like I mean we have people we have like biochemists and we have people who are like doing like chemical engineering or stuff like that come in to the restaurant to learn fermentation and yes they'll know like all of the words all of the technical lingo like you know you can learn, name everything in Latin and, and so on and so forth but when it actually comes down to fermentation like you it's very surprising that you, to the point you can actually teach them stuff which I couldn't teach them anything about like I know thermodynamics or anything like that but when it comes to say specifically um, Aspergillus or like koji, or what is happening inside of a garum, like explain like all the steps of mild reaction, different type, like it's very easy to explain that properly because you've just dug, dug the rabbit hole, and that's really what it is like. Yes, they know everything on like one plane, but you know that much on this plane in so much depth. In so much depth that it's like a kind of iceberg downwards. So like yes, they know everything at the surface, which is great, and that's really important if you're doing that as a field, but with this it's like it's nice to know everything but I think it's more important especially if your role revolves around it is just knowing that specific thing 
but all of it, <laughs> basically. Uh, and then at that point, that's when you can actually start to develop stuff and, and really kind of push the, push the boundary of that specific thing. Um, and it's also, the fun thing is, like, if you're one of these people that likes to just learn random stuff, like you sit up in, at 1 a.m. and just scrolling through, like, a science page or something, you, you amass a lot of really weird, almost uh, pointless knowledge. But with fermentation, like, it's a lot of that is, like, learning all that weird, pointless knowledge. And then through amassing so much of it, it's linking those together. I mean, I remember we were reading an article about um, the pH level of, um, of burnt skins, so that basically like ash is really alkaline, and we were creating loads of um, beetroot ash. So we had a dish on where you like char the skin of the beetroot, 300 degrees until the internal reaches 99, and then you dehydrate it at 80 degrees overnight, and then you freeze it. And then when you defrost it, it the texture is pretty much identical to sashimi. Um, so it's like raw fish beetroot and we had loads of these like burnt skins left over and we're like what do we do with it and then I was reading with miso you want it to end at about 5 to 7 pH so relatively neutral um, but if you're going low salt for like a higher you know basically to, to ferment it quicker um, you produce a lot of lactic acid so it's very acidic so it never really balances back out to being like neutral pH but if you chuck loads of um, these beetroot, like burnt beetroot skins in, it doesn't really change the flavour at all. Um, but it naturally raises the pH in a zero waste way. So it's kind of like taking zero waste kind of fundamentals, you know, not wasting anything, and taking the idea that, oh, this is actually completely alkaline, and then taking something that needs to, their pH neutralised and then adding the three together. So it's like three random pieces of knowledge kind of combined just through weird, like, random bits of learning and that's the I guess the fun side of, of this type of thing and you can't really learn that from I mean maybe you can learn that from a chemistry degree but it's not hands on with food no and you find that like oh, well at least I find that when you're actually involved in something every day all of these things kind of fall out of the air almost it's like it's almost like not like it's meant to be but there's like a pathway of learning and when you're on it things just kind of appear and you learn it and like that leads to the next step I don't know like why that is um, the case. <laughs> I don't. There's no. I've not read anything that suggests why that is, but that's why I've experienced at least. Um, and I'm sure, like at some point, sure, I'd love to sit down and like do a, a degree or um, learn it in sort of traditional sense. But I, I meet a lot of food scientists. I meet a lot of people in these fields, and they're just like, actually, it's. Unless you're doing it to get to a point where you can, like, say, be a professor and you have access to things that no one else has, it's not really worth it um, for them and also for me. I'm not saying it's not worth it, but I've not really seen any evidence, that, for me at least, that, that it is. Um, but it's definitely interesting, for sure. You said that your whole family was very engineering-based with the jobs that they chose? My, my um, father's side was engineering-based, but my mother's side was actually more creative. So, How did they respond to you doing quite a different career pathway? Um, I think they were... They were relatively happy, I think, because I think they're, most, they're more happy to start with that I had a job, which I think is quite a lot of parents. <laughs> um, but... The thing with cooking, like, I always, the, the way that I looked at it to start with was like, okay, I'll do this thing, and if I don't like it after a year, at least I've learned a skill that's useful um, in terms of, like, I'll know how to cook, or I'll know how to do X, Y, Z, and there's a, a lot of, 
like outside of the cooking as aspect, like the whole idea of being a chef is you're organized and you're efficient. Uh, you have X amount of time to achieve something, and like every single day you have to be ready for service. And the only way you get ready for service is if you make your workload efficient. But also you can't, at a fine dining level, you can't compromise on the quality. Um, so it teaches efficiency. So I was like, okay, like I'll go into fine dining and I'll learn that. And if I don't like it after a year, then uh, I'll do something else. And I'll see from there. Maybe I'll go back to school. Um, like I was, yeah, I was like at the time I was like eighteen, so I was like, okay, like it's not the end of the world. And I think my parents also saw that. But at that time, I was traveling quite a lot, and I was just out of school, um, playing a lot of like video games and stuff. And um, I think they were just like, okay, go just do something. And about five five years later, six years almost now, uh, still here. Um, but they were quite happy with this feel like they don't understand it and that's fine I mean a lot of people don't and that's like that's the fun part of it because um, the idea is like taking something that people might not really understand and then through the medium of, of eating and tasting smelling and seeing is making something that people can relate to uh, through their own personal experience and through their own like their senses basically um, which is the fun part like maybe they don't get what a garam is or maybe they don't get why you've foraged this certain thing or like how this oil works or why you've plated it in this way but when they see it and smell it and taste it and they hear the story behind it then that's the link that is most important um, so they yeah uh, I also I don't think they wanted me to pursue the engineering field <laughs> um, because there's been enough of those I think in, in, in my family uh, and I wasn't really in, interested the, again with the efficiency thing my, my problem with engineering at least mechanical engineering it's like in, in cooking we talk about perfection like it's something that is real like this dish is perfect this is perfect and really that just means it's good it tastes nice to your palate um, like your taste receptors in your mouth like register that this thing is like good for you that's really it but whereas in engineering like especially like high mechanical energy my family have been through aerospace and like oil and gas and stuff like if you have a gasket seal that's out by a micron on an oil rig like you can blow up the oil rig like you that needs to be perfect because it's like actually tangible into what it has to be and also there's like no like it can't be a little bit out it has to be like right but there is also the problem with that is like um, the time that it takes to do that is massive and you don't really get rushed so much to do it either uh, I'm sure there might be some sect of engineering which you do like obviously the tighter deadlines but the ones my family don't exist so I wanted to do something that you could get close to that level of perfection which now I realise doesn't really exist um, but also in a reasonable time because <laughs> um, I think that's yeah. if I'm going to take a teaching from something into like personal life that's something that I, I think is quite important so, yeah. Did you grow up in London? No, I grew up in uh, well, I was born in Slough so just outside of it so not the best place in the world uh, dear to my heart uh, but I went to school in Windsor and around that area um, but I spent a little bit of time in, in Thailand as well, growing up. Uh, so I saw kind of a mix of, mix of things, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, well, Thailand was really, really fun. Like, I, I was there mostly when I was really, really young. Uh, and that was in a place called Surin, um, which at that time, like, Surin's a, um, a low-lying rice farming village. Um, 
and back then there was no lights it was dirt roads they were still using buffalo to plow the fields um so really interesting kind of background and like it's weird nowadays people are kind of moving back towards that type of farming um, so it was fun like from a very very young age seeing that sort because you talk about regenerative agriculture and, and rotational farming and that's what people were doing in in my kind of home village uh, 20 years ago um, and they're not doing it now because they've kind of caught up with the western world but now the western world is like leaping back to that obviously on a larger scale but you know there was no fertilizers there was no anything like that because they didn't have the money for it <laughs> they just kind of relied on what they've been doing for a thousand years um, and it wasn't necessarily super efficient rice farming is not very efficient uh, and it's relatively unsustainable but they were just that's all they had so uh, yeah because you're so interested in sustainability and you work at a zero waste restaurant how do you find eating out in London do restaurants have to subscribe to a certain ethos for you to want to eat there Mm, no, I don't. The, th- the thing with London, like, I, I mean, I've had the, like the, the luxury and opportunity to go to like the, the best restaurants in London, and they're all good. They're all good at what they do. Um, it's just the in- like some of them I find not very interesting because it's just very, very good food cooked well and plated nicely. Which there's a point in time where that was everything. That meant everything. But now it, I don't think it's really the case. Um, I went to this isn't in London. But I went to Longclean. Uh, last year and that was really cool because they that's what they do it's really incredible food cooked well but also super sustainable they have everything from their farm just up the road um, they're starting to delve into garums and different types of preserves and so on and so forth uh, and they really like showcase the the area that they're in I mean they're up in the Lake District it's a beautiful area and there's incredible produce um, I have not really seen something like that in London at least not at the top level there is like smaller restaurants doing it We'd like to think that that's what we're trying to do as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, for me, if I go out in London, I go to Cheap Eats because I, there's there's a community side in London that I think is so important. Uh, and a lot of these kind of Cheap Eat restaurants um, or, like, kind of local, they, they've been here for 50, 60, 70 years. And I like that history side. Maybe they're not the most sustainable. I mean, probably not. Um, but you can't really, like bash them because they've still got a sense of community they're like a pillar um, obviously we're a chef so it's not like <laughs> we're not we don't have the budget to go to all these amazing places all the time um, but there's yeah I mean if, if I'm looking for like a fine dining place to go to it, I, it's got to really it's just got to be interesting it's got to have a story behind it it doesn't necessarily have to be sustainability related but the interest I think is why the food, like even if the food's not the most amazing Obviously, I'll go and evaluate and, you know, taste everything very specific. But, like, at the end of the day, it's, like, it's it's what the chef or the restaurant as a whole is trying to achieve, like, the story they're trying to tell. Um, Which other restaurants other than Silo do you think are special in that way? Um, yeah, it's difficult to say. <laughs> in, in London, that is. Um... I think off the top of my head, there's been quite a few good ones. I mean, uh, Calais in Bermondsey just opened up there with the the um, they're with uh, some sort of group. Um, so Tony, the head chef, he, he came here to do a, a stage. But I mean, they 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 look to be doing races. Like basically, Calais is a type of Thai cooking where it's um, it's kind of marinated in coconut and then 
cooked over fire. Um, and that's more Southern Thai, so it's not from where I'm from, but um, really, really cool, interesting type of cooking. But the, the attention to detail and uh, the dishes that they put up, just in terms of flavor and the story kind of that they're showing, because it's a, it's a very uncommon, like, normally if you eat Thai food, it's stuff from the Isan region, which is where I grew up, or stuff from the city. I, I've not seen anyone cook that type of style of Thai food really outside of that region. Like, I don't even see those type of restaurants outside of the south of Thailand. Um, and the fact that they're able to pull it off with uh, British ingredients and um, like a pretty much predominantly English team from what I've seen. Um, well, I mean, Teddy's from New Zealand, but uh, that was really, really interesting. Um, and the food was incredible. Like, flavor-wise, probably up there. My I'm trying not to be biased because it's Thai food, but like... There's a lot of Thai food in London, and there's a lot of interesting Thai food. And these, I'm not going to name restaurants, but they get a lot of praise, and they rightfully so, because the fact that they're able to nail Isan cooking um, in the centre of London is pretty impressive. Um, for me, I don't like growing up eating that food, and it's it's spot on to the food that I grew up on. But the fact is, like, you eat that food for like one pound on the side of the street, um, which is part of the experience. Um, the fact that they've nailed those very profiles is super, super impressive. And obviously, there's a restaurant that needs to exist within London, so it needs to charge these amounts. But for me, it's probably not... It, the first time going, it's super special, but it's never a place that I would go loads to. Um, but th this Calais place in Bermondsey, very, 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 very I good. went there recently, actually, and the mussel skewers, they were so good. They were they were so delicious. But, you know, they're also starting to do a lot of ferments um, themselves. Like, because they can't... It, for example, there's this... Um, yellow uh, soybean dish. So it's like fermented soybeans, very similar to like, it's kind of like natto almost. Um, but it exists in the north of Thailand. And I'm pretty sure it's from, because north of Thailand is on the border of China. So Chinese like immig immigrants in the hill tribes, because um, you have a region called Myanmar, which is like the, the um, it's like the Switzerland of Thailand, that's what people call it. It's really, really mountainous. Um, so for the idea is that those tribes actually develop this specific ferment from their history with Thai ingredients in this really high altitude region of Thailand um, and you can't buy this stuff it's really I, I asked my mum I was like can you get this and she was like no um, but they've managed to like make something similar to it um, through like their fermentation methods in London so they're actually like it's not just another Thai restaurant trying to emulate Thai food which maybe it kind of is but they're also trying to like push and bring back these ingredients that are lost and really really delicious um, and they're going to move more into doing this type of stuff so yeah I mean even though they're kind of like I guess a cuisine restaurant doing Thai food they're also trying to push sort of boundaries in that sense which is really really nice um, but outside of them I it's hard to think off the top of my head. I mean, like I can name some restaurants that I just really enjoy eating from. Yeah. I mean, Prilla is one of them. I, I know you and Ben Marks did a, a, an interview. But every time I go there, I'm always very happy. Like, never had a bad meal. Um, he actually said something really similar to you, which is, although Prilla is viewed as an innovative restaurant, a lot of the food that they make is deeply entrenched in the traditional French cooking methods. Yeah, no, that's a really, really interesting point. I think he's definitely right in that sense. Um, I think, I mean, in the term, just in terms of like not trying to alienate your audience, 
too much. Mm. Like we have some like wild, wild ideas, which the thing is like, you know, if a dish tastes nice, like even if the idea is wild, like it's still gonna land. Uh, again, the good thing about science is, is like if chocolate's with marmite, something it's always gonna taste nice, uh, given that it's not over seasoned or, or X, Y, Z. Um, but then the idea is still a big thing. So we're serving like rabbit dumpling, for example. Um, so rabbit, if we served it, I mean, rabbit is eaten all over Eastern Europe. A lot of people and in France and so on and so forth, it's really, really popular, but still there's a stigma behind it in the UK that it's a cute pet, basically. Even though it's a super invasive species. Um, so what we have to do with it is basically mince it and turn it into a dumpling, like a, almost like a dim sum. Um, kind of like children. Yeah, you kind of hide it, or you, you just, I mean like, yeah, growing up I was actually quite a fussy eater, now I eat everything, but like, um, the way that my mum used to do it was like, she would just blend up all the vegetables, and even though there's like 20 things in there I didn't like, all taste kind of was one. And that's not really what we're trying to do, we're still obviously trying to like, refine flavours and do some stuff, but like, to kind of take this invasive species that people have this kind of idea behind, and then put it into something that people will not be too scared of eating mm. um, it's kind of ha- like and maybe we can slowly but surely move it in the direction but it also need, like, if we are going to ever you know make a statement and serve a whole rabbit or it's going to make sense it's not just for the idea of like oh we can do this we want to be provocative xyz it's actually just like well actually it makes sense in the dumpling because of the, the way that the meat is. It's very, very lean and it's kind of fat to be added to it. Um, but also it kind of encloses the idea that there is a rabbit that you're eating. Uh, and, you know, we did the invasive species menu, which was a lot of things on there which you wouldn't normally eat at all. Uh, we had squirrel on there as well, which is one of the things, uh, like a kofta. Um, but I think the thing with that is it's you kind of know what the menu is already and it's a ticketed event so if you're going to it you kind of know what you're signing up for whereas like if you come to a restaurant can't really put squirrel on the menu yet at least um, because I think the majority of people wouldn't really be happy with that um, but you don't have to because there's, there's loads of things out there which is invasive and delicious and won't cause this kind of like moral obligation I guess not to eat um, but yeah like as, as Ben said uh, you you should be innovative and so on and so forth but obviously there is like a foundation that you do I wouldn't say have to adhere by but it makes sense to adhere by because it's worked for the last hundred years um, and there's a lot that you can draw from it and like I said you know knowing what happened in the past is very very important going forward because it's way better for someone else to make your mistakes years ago than it is for you to just keep repeating the same thing in the pursuit of learning uh, for sure yeah um, so yeah I mean even here like we still make like classic jus we still make um, loads of like French cooking basically um, even though we're trying to push flavors and ingredients and so on and so forth in, in radically different directions but there's always that foundation there um, but if you look at like the best like, best kind of example is just new Nordic cuisine. Um, that's kind of what they're doing, like taking Japanese techniques, taking X, Y, Z, cl- very classic French foundation, and then the local ingredients in their area, and applying all of these in- like techniques and, and, and ingredients together to then create something that is new and interesting. Um, we're not trying to be a new Nordic restaurant, but we're just kind of trying to see what that looks like within British cooking. Um, and just having fun with it.
Do you cook at home a lot or do you prefer to leave leave that at work? Um, I never go home and cook, but that's normally because it's I don't have time. Um, but when I can, I do. And But that's normally like, I don't cook anything extravagant. It's just stuff I know is going to taste nice. It's going to be pretty nutritious and healthy. Because you go a week just having star food, and star food is good, but um, you want something that's like hearty and has all the nutrition that you need <laughs> or you're lacking, should I say. Um, and yeah, it's not necessarily like super system. I don't like go and source all my stuff from a farm. Like sometimes I do, but again, that takes that. Like maybe I'll order meat through our supplier if I'm going to have meat at home. But yeah, I mean it's it's kind of your own your own space. I do a lot of present like tin stuff because tin is actually really really, um, really sustainable. Like as a material, pretty much the most sustainable packaging material is tin. Super widely recycled and actually recycled into something useful um, which not a lot of things are unfortunately even like glass um, yeah I, I, I try to cook at home when I can um, but also like cooking just for yourself but if I'm cooking for people then that's when you want to put the effort in and it's kind of why we become chefs I guess is that you are trying to cook for someone else it's, it's the idea of sharing this thing with other people and there's not a lot more uh, inviting, I guess, or, or hospitable than sharing milk with someone. Um, so even if it's just one other person, it's like, okay, I'll actually go my extra way. Like, I'll spend two hours cooking, even if I've been here the whole week. Um, but yeah, normally if it's just yourself, unless like you're, you know, you make, a nice one is a curry because you just make a big batch, you know, eat what you need at night and freeze the rest. Mm-hmm. And that works quite nice. But yeah, I, I rarely cook at home nowadays. I used to cook a lot more. Not so much now. Yeah, but I, to be fair, we eat here. Like hit the, the work environment here is really nice in, in terms of like one person in a day or maybe two people like sit down and they'll cook a nice star food. Uh, and on Saturday we have like a proper family meal where everyone comes in this PDR and then like you know we have maybe open a bottle of wine and light some candles and have like a proper like you know hour out just to eat and sit down and talk and relax and have a good meal. Um, so you do get fed, which is nice. But then like end of shift rolls around you're like I'm starving again <laughs> um, yeah. so yeah it's not but that's like the that's hospitality is in general basically but I'm sure even uh, even that will change at some point uh, which is nice that's the other side of things that we're trying to address is like you know why don't we come in and have breakfast like we get more staff members we get more efficient with everything there's no reason why we can't come in have a staff breakfast a staff lunch and then snack like during service just so everyone's fed and healthy and so on and so forth like the work environment in, in terms of staff welfare is really really important um, and it also yields happier members of staff well I bet that helps with retaining staff because everyone wants to be cared for by the company they work for yeah well massively and also like you know in a, even in a selfish sense like we should eat as well <laughs> like, like yeah. every, everyone should should be able to um, especially with the hours that you do at a restaurant I mean our hours are, pretty, are really good compared to most kitchens we're not doing like 18 hour shifts like like a lot of the three stars but I think the most we'll do is 14 and even then it's I mean it's 45 hours a week four days a week which is kind of where the industry is moving to but like if you said that I know th- four years ago it's kind of unheard of but it's just then taking that 45 hours a week and like really getting the most out of it, which we believe we do. And then also like how in that 45 hours a week can we make it the best possible experience for the people working here? Because um, I think a lot of people come to this restaurant 
as a and treat they kind of treat it like a, a group project as opposed to like work. So everyone's kind of moving towards a common goal, which is the betterment of food systems or food in general and, and this and, and less waste. Um, as opposed to just being like, oh, I need to clock in, do my work, get my music plus done, go home. Um, like there's yeah. So that being said, like you need to kind of if it is a project, you need to like treat everyone in your team in that sense. Like it's just everyone working together. And it's also where we have like roles like head of fermentation. It's taking someone's specific skill set and then using that to the possible like the highest possible use case. It's um, yeah, like for example we have people most people in the kitchen at the moment are really multidiscipline like multidisciplinary. Like they all have different backgrounds. Like I think me and the head chef are the only two people that have pretty much the straight cooking backgrounds oh, okay, out of yeah. school. Like everyone else is like um, masters in design or like a DJ or we've had people who are doing linguistics are like, you know, relatively different backgrounds mm-hmm. but all will come together to cook. And I think the reason they've done that is because they believe in the project as a whole, not just I need some cash and go become a chef. It's the idea behind it. Um, I think you know, even though the work environment is, is great and so on and so forth, like you still it's still a job that you need to want to do. It's not just like one that you tiptoe through. Um, and I think that's the case with most kitchens, because why would you work these hours if <laughs> you didn't want to? Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. Um, but it's nice to also be able to utilize those skills once they get to a point where they're comfortable enough to use them. Because that's the other thing. You can't just be like, oh, you have this background. I'm going to stick you on this job. And they're like, oh, but I'm still learning like the kitchen side. It's like you kind of wait until they're ready. And then they'll be like, oh, well, I want to start using my background. And I want to start maybe see if they have a design background. I want to do the set dressing for the tables. I want to like, well, they have like a psychology background. It's like I want to intertwine eating psychology and, and food psychology with the dining experience and it, like everything again like I said it, it evolves in a natural way um, once everyone's relatively comfortable where I think a lot of kitchens it's just like you're a CDP you do this job or like you do this you do this and there's no real scope for personal development in that sense uh, which is why I think people stay here for so long it's you you get um, you get more out of it than just learning to butcher something or um, your skills all of them are nurtured yeah yeah as a, and like, but also not just skills but like individuals as people which is the main thing um, we also do like a lot of like outside external events so people get to like travel through work and see other places and understand different philosophies and ideologies of cooking and, and produce and so on and so forth like we go see our farmers and it's not just like here's a farm here's some stuff bit of spiel go home it's actually interacting like we went to uh, Matt Chatfield's farm um, guy who sells Coyard, the Cornwall project, um, and we we camped on his uh, on his farm overnight and um, had a great chat with him and uh, had a great great time and like that kind of interaction between not just us and each other but also us and suppliers is really really important because it is a community and there's not a lot of people doing this type of stuff as well so it's nice to find those people who are doing it and really kind of cherish them. I try to ask this at the end of all my podcasts. If you were talking to a young person like yourself when they were just embarking on a career in hospitality, what advice would you give them? What would you tell them? Hmm. I'd, I'd say take it slow. <laughs> like, I mean, I've, it looks like I've kind of rushed through things to position, but like it has still been like five years of cooking, which isn't like, there's probably 
you know, a lot of people I talk to, they're like, I've been cooking 20 years and I'm still X, Y, Z. But, you know, I think taking it so is important because you kind of want to, you don't want to rush into something. Like when I first started, I was like, oh, I want to go work at a three star. And I know I've worked with, I'm working with, I know plenty of people who have gone through that route and gone through best restaurants in the world. And that's cool. It looks great on CV and it's nice to flex it, to be like, oh, I work the best restaurant. But like, one, I don't think it actually, you, I don't think you learn, unless you're, unless you're someone who's really, really outgoing and really like on it in terms of wanting to learn and like you push people around you to teach you more, you're not gonna learn a lot from those places anyway until maybe you're more, you have a better set of foundational skills. Um, it's also like, it's also very, very, very difficult. The hours you work, the work environment, there's still a lot of toxic culture in those places and there will be for quite a while. Um, so if you can handle that, great. But I, I, I don't think it's worth it for most people. Um, but I could be wrong. It's also great to go through that, I mean, maybe once. Um, but yeah, it's just like thinking, really like taking it slow, looking at what you enjoy um, and kind of finding a way to do that. I mean, at the end of the day, like, learning to be a chef is probably the most important thing like learning to be organized learning to be efficient learning how to interact with each other understanding like why you're cooking what you're cooking for um understanding the farm and the ingredients the quality like understand that essentially the job is to take these amazing things and just not really mess them up um to take make the most out of all these ingredients and once you do that like you can then take those teachings to anything you do and maybe you hop into something that you don't really enjoy but it's then like maybe not kind of beating a dead horse it's maybe re realizing that no, but you know, find, it's finding a place that will nurture you as well. That, that's for for me personally. That's been the most important thing in my career is that it's finding places that you can actually like. They care about your development. Like they, they care that you're learning. Um, and even if they're not the ones teaching you, they allow you to teach yourself. Instead of just being like, you're just a cog in a machine. Here's a knife. Chop twenty kilos of onions and go home. <laughs> like it's actually been like, oh, you know, you have shown interest in this teach you or like oh here come here like butcher this fish with me or like you know and that's you you should be able to gauge that as soon as you enter a place it, it's not something that like yes there's places that you have to spend xyz time in to then unlock that teaching but like it, it maybe some people like that but i think it's just a waste of time it's just you know find a place that as soon as you go in they're like friendly to you they say hello in the morning they ask how your day's been they say goodbye in the evening like that kind of starts. I think it's, it's more about go less about the accolades, less about like what you think you your perceived like learning will be from a place, and just go for a place which like actually cares. But if you go to one star that cares about you and like they put you in every section, you'll learn way more in like six months there than you will pretty much any other place. And it's like so I'll teach you how to do it right most of the time, and they'll also care about. It. And if they don't teach you right, you're also in a position to question that. Uh, which I've seen so many kitchens, if you question someone, even if you know you're right because you've done the research, they'll be like, don't talk to me. Or like, <laughs> yeah, they'll hold a grudge for like a year or something, um, which unfortunately is not something that has left the industry yet. I don't think it will, because it's kind of human nature at this point. But yeah, it's have fun. Um, but kind of put yourself first in, in that sense. Like, yeah. Because, I mean, if you're going to spend all these hours working for someone, if you're going to commit all this time, you might as well, it might as well be good. <laughs> um, at least that's what I think. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was so interesting. It's crazy listening to someone from a multidisciplinary background becoming a fantastically scientific and creative chef.
thank you for giving me your time this morning. No worries. Uh, pleasure. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed nerding out about food just as much as I did. If you want to be updated regularly about new podcasts, follow my Instagram at Stella Gent and at Stella's Scoop.